I saw the older kids. I don't know if I see the parents, though. But we're congratulating the Michaels on the birth of their child, Ruby Joel Michael, born big. Um, I know all the ladies like that stuff, but I can tell you what it all is. So uh, be praying for that family as they adjust with a new baby in the house. Uh, I've almost forgotten all of those things. So, uh, and some of you are further along than I am. So make sure you remember and pray. But be praying for the Michaels as well. It's exciting to see that. Uh, what brings you joy? As you open your Bibles up to John chapter 16, verses 16 to 13, what brings you joy? Uh, It's interesting how, you know, when you kind of plan things out, and my sermon series are usually, uh, I know what I'm preaching a year from now. And uh, it's funny how God seems to align things. And as we were looking at the story of how Paul persecuted the church, I think this is a very good question. What brings you joy? In your life, what brings you joy? A few years ago, I've used this before, a few years ago, uh, my family and I had the opportunity of going to Florida and going to Disneyland, which was awesome. Um, not from like an adult perspective, it was a good time. Uh, who cares what my children think? Uh, I'll go by myself. Um, but it was a good time of doing there. And we went on one roller coaster there. And as we were getting into this roller coaster, uh, it was one of those like shotgun ones where they sit you in and they kind of bring you back and they propel you forward. And I was sitting in the front because we have an odd number in my family. So I was sitting with another dad, him and I, uh, who I don't know his name. Uh, and uh, my children were behind me. And all of a sudden I hear from behind me as the rock or as the as a roller coaster propelled forward was this is awesome <laughs> it was awesome it was a good time you know what the problem is with the roller coaster it ends i know for some of us that's a good thing but uh, uh but it was fleeting at some point the roller coaster comes to an end So the joy, the ecstasy that that person, my child, was feeling at that moment as the roller coaster goes is gone. Once the roller coaster is done, and then they're looking for the next fix. Let's go to the next roller coaster. I'm getting old enough now that I I just can't do it anymore. Uh, There's a friend of mine uh, named Dr. Fowler. He's preached here before, and he's like part of a roller coaster club. And he's 75. And I'm like, what are you doing? But even in this roller coaster, at that moment of time, was a fantastic, joyful experience, but it's fleeting, it ended. So how do you have joy that doesn't go away depending upon your circumstances? In John 16, 16 to 33, Jesus tells his disciples that the sorrow that they feel now as Jesus is walking to the Garden of Gethsemane, this is after uh, the Last Supper, and his, he and his disciples are walking to the Garden, and if we remember our Easter story, that is when Jesus gets arrested and betrayed by Judas. He is brought before a number of different uh, political leaders and is later crucified on a cross. And he says to his disciples that the sorrow that they feel at this moment as they enter into this time of unknown will turn to joy. 
So it's a good question to ask, what brings you joy? How can he say that? How can Jesus say that? How can they find peace in a world, in that circumstance, at that moment of time, that hates them? How could they possibly have joy? So if you have your Bibles, John 16, 16 to 33, the word of the Lord says this. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, A little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me. A little confusing. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourself? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby... She no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no longer will, uh, no, no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I, do, and, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world, and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah! Now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you come from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone. For the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In this, in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity, this chance to continue to worship you. As we hear your word preached, Lord, I pray that indeed you are glorified. And we pray for all the churches here in London that are indeed declaring the full gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. 
I pray that the pulpit, in the pulpit, that those pastors, those men that are preaching your word, that they would have the boldness that is needed to declare the full counsel, your full counsel. I pray that you give them wisdom to the pastors and the elders as they continue to seek to shepherd their flock. And Lord, we specifically think of Compass Community Church and Pastor Joey. I pray that you would bless them as they seek to be faithful to what you have called them to do and to be, to be disciples, to grow in Christ's likeness, and to go and make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we pray that for this city, Lord, that you would call people to yourself, that your kingdom would grow here in London as churches faithfully proclaim the good news, as they gather and as they scatter. But Lord, as we come together to pray and worship, we pray, Lord, I pray, that you are glorified. I want to speak of you, and I want to praise your name. And Lord, I can't do it. I cannot make this turn out well. So by your spirit, help me to preach this sermon with what is needed. Use this sermon to bring glory to your name, joy to your people, and salvation to the lost. And amen. Having described how he will go away so that he can send the spirit, we talked about that last time we were in John a couple of weeks ago, who the Holy Spirit will continue in his ministry and glorify him. We saw that in John 16, verses 4 to 15. Jesus prepares the disciples for his death by promising them the joy of his resurrection. It's kind of like getting a present and you already know what the present is. He added that they will enjoy a new and deeper access to the Father in prayer. And he commands them to take heart. It's a command. It's not even an option. Take heart. Because he has overcome the world. So in verses 16 to 22, we see the hope of Jesus' death and his resurrection. As he says in verse 16, a little while. It's said seven times in these few verses. So you can go and you can count them. From verses 16 to 17. Here we see Jesus introducing it. And the disciples talking about it in verses 17 to 18. And Jesus asks them about their conversation in verse 19. And then Jesus explains what he means in verse 20. And then he gives this wonderful illustration that every mother in this room begins to kind of cringe at in verses 21 to 22. Jesus will die. But then after a little while, he says, his disciples will again see him. Because Jesus will rise from the dead. In verses 17 and 19, the disciples are confused, and rightly so, because Jesus keeps using these figuratives of speech. Don't you, like, I can't stand it. I'm a, I like to get right to the point. It's like when you get, like, when you're buying a house, and you get your document, right? And it's like 50 pages long. All I want to do is buy the house. That's it. Right? And in this day and age, you can't even do any conditions. So I don't know why it has to be 50 pages. You can ask a lawyer about that. The disciples haven't established the mental perspective Jesus wishes them to have and, and are thinking only in terms of the situation that, they are, that is in front of them right now. Jesus is going and they're freaking out. They are only thinking of their circumstances. And they don't have a category to allow them to make sense of a Messiah that would die for them. That would rise from the dead. 
They couldn't understand how they, he could leave his people and give them another counselor, the Holy Spirit. This is why in John 16, 12, Jesus couldn't tell them anymore. Back in, in verse 12, he says, I can't tell you anything more right now because you're just not quite there yet. So he says in verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. You ever thought about what lament means? I think the church is, we don't, I talk about this with Pastor Matt all the time. We don't do a good job at lamenting. We don't even really understand the theology of it. But he comes along, he says, you will weep and you lament. Like that crying, that uncontrollable wailing that you hear. And why? Because they will be grieved over Jesus' death. And the world will rejoice as they watch at them, as they lament and they weep and they fall on their knees and they're crying out to God about why this is happening. The world will see that and they will actually rejoice because Jesus is dead. So those who killed Jesus think that they have won. So they rejoice that Jesus is finally gone. But that's not how it works. Because Jesus says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Why? Because he doesn't stay dead. That's why. The disciples' attitude will change as they see the resurrected Jesus walking and and hanging out with them. For 40 days he does that. Eating and drinking and making fish on the speech. The joy that the disciples are promised springs from Jesus' resurrection. And for you and I, this is very applicable. In verse 21, Jesus gives that illustration of a pregnant woman giving birth. Obviously, I've never had that experience. So uh, I had to ask my wife about these things because I don't know. And then I tried Googling things, and that didn't work either. So, men, just don't. But did you know that when a woman gives birth, the oxytocin levels surge postpartum to help the woman feel that strong, motherly instinct? There's a chemical that gets released. God created it that way. That once they give birth, you know, the agonizing work of giving birth to a child, suddenly they're no longer looking or dwelling upon that painful experience anymore. It's like a sudden switch. Look at this baby. And they're crying with joy or laughing or just happy, whatever the, emo- the, the, the physical outpouring is of that. It helps that joy feeling once the hard work of delivery is done. The intense labor pains a woman suffer in delivery, delivering a baby give way to the satisfied joy that a child has been born into this world. I follow, uh, they're going to hate me for this, but I follow Miriam Michael on Instagram, and there's a lot of joy there with all their little pictures. The combination of the intense suffering and and, and relieved joy at childbirth is used throughout even the whole Bible to show that God's people must suffer before the immense relief and joy brought of salvation. 
he says in verse 22, this is a joy that cannot be taken away. And why will no one be able to take their joy away? Because the resurrection of Jesus isn't just a discrete event, but the onset of a new age, the dawning of the new creation, the precursor to the age when the Holy Spirit will indwell in his people. That is a joy that no one can take away. One, per- one person put it this way, you are now entering in a period of pain, sorrow, and tribulation, but fear not, Jesus says. It shall not be forever. I will return and see you again. In that day your heart shall be filled and satisfied with joy, a joy which no one can ever take from you, a joy which shall be forever. Through his death, through Jesus' death and his resurrection, Jesus invites us into a relationship of eternal joy with the God who created us. Finally, through Jesus, we are able to do what we were created to do, and that is to worship and to praise our God, to bring glory to him. He grants us not just eternal life, but abundant life with him. Our satisfaction is not based upon our circumstances, but in Christ. The gospel frees us from the need to fake it till you make it. Or the pretending. Jesus knows his disciples' sorrow. He knows the heart. So he doesn't sweep it under the rug and tell them to pull up their bootstraps and let's just get going. He points them somewhere else. He does promise them the coming of a great joy. And he uses a a mother giving birth as as the pain transforms into joy once the mother gives birth to a child. Whatever you are going through right now, whatever the hardships are, whatever is happening in the past or whatever is going to happen in the future because of the faith that you have in Jesus Christ, we have a hope that can't be taken away. Is a hope that's based upon the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to his Father, and will one day return. It's not a hope that's based upon our circumstances. And the joy that is to come eclipses whatever our circumstances may be. Keep your eyes on him who is the author and the finisher of faith. Keep your eyes on the one who died for your sins and rose again, who reconciled you to the Father and gave you the Spirit who indwells within you. Keep your eyes on him. In Romans 8, 18-25, the Apostle Paul uses this same metaphor when he talks about how our world is pregnant with glory to talk about our life in Christ, as it says in verse 18 of chapter 8 of Romans For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Keep in mind, this is the Apostle Paul. He's been beaten, shipwrecked, a whole bunch of stuff for the sake of the gospel. We just saw some of it. 
For creation waits with eager, as he continues on in verse 19, longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the, ch- of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And now only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirits groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we are, were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Our salvation has been given to us, but his blessings are not quite here. They haven't been fully revealed. We live this life in the already but not yet is full of complexities and challenges and hardships, similar to the experience of giving birth. But a full-term birth is guaranteed for both God's children and his creation. Uh, A man named Paul, he says it this way in this quote there, the time of this life is the whirling hour, Old English. While it is for the most part the power of darkness to all who love and fear God, but as the whirling's joy shall at last be turned into sorrow, so the godly man's sorrow shall be turned into joy. For the mother giving birth, that pain is not final. Joy soon follows. And similarly, Jesus warned his disciples of his crucifixion and their pain and their persecution, but the disciples' sorrow would not last forever. In a little while, he says, they would rejoice. That joy would come because they would see Jesus again. They would also experience life in Christ with a coming of the Holy Spirit that gives them a new access to the Father through his death and resurrection. Jesus invites us into a, a relationship, into a life of eternal, a, a eternal life, an abundant life with him. Our satisfaction is not in our circumstances, but in Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose again. For those who are in Christ, there is a hope in the death and the resurrection. It's in these next verses, though, in verses 23 to 28, that Jesus shows more ways that his going will benefit his followers. When Jesus leaves, it will give them a new access to the Father in prayer, as he says in verses 23 to 28. Along with the joy Jesus promised would come an indescribable, something that has never happened before, access to the Father through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Not only will Jesus' death and resurrection make it possible for the Holy Spirit to come and indwell his followers, but will open up a new access to the Father in prayer. The Father will answer prayer requests that magnify Jesus and fit into his redemptive purposes when they are prayed in his name. So he says in verse 23, In that day you will ask nothing of me. 
The day is talked about here. It's a day when Jesus returns his second advent. And when he's talking about asking, he's talking about asking the questions and making inquiries like what the disciples were doing in verse 19. And this is a different word that is used later when we look at the, uh, it's used for asking later. The Greek is actually, uses two different Greek words, sorry. The Greek uses two different Greek words to describe the two different types of asking. So the first one is talking about, like asking a question. The next one is talking about petitioning. So what is said here in verse 23 is that in the day of my second advent, my return, you will not need to ask me any questions. You will then fully understand the meaning of this and many other things that you don't know now. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So Jesus comes and he says, not only will there be an access, but if you ask in my name, as he says, whatever you ask of the Father in my name. So when Jesus says what will take place in that day, he's talking about the time after the disciples' sorrow has turned into that joy. Each time Jesus speaks of his disciples praying in his name, he speaks of the prayer that will happen after he leaves. When Jesus leaves, the disciples will enjoy this new access to the Father in prayer through his name and they didn't, that they didn't have before the death and the resurrection. That's why he says in verse 24, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. See, as I was saying, what's interesting about this here, this ask here, is it's talking about seeking or petitioning in prayer. But the first ask is talking about asking questions. See, the cross of Christ cleanses his followers from sin and guarantees the salvation of God's people. Jesus laid down his life for his sheep and he will call his sheep by name and Jesus sent his disciples to bear fruit and part of that bearing fruit will entail their prayers in Jesus' name. So does this mean that every time you pray and you end it in Jesus' name that that means there's going to be a guarantee that it's going to happen? You know, I don't know how many times growing up I prayed for a car in Jesus' name. It's not some sort of, like, two-step verification code for your online banking. That's not how praying in Jesus' name works. There are, no, these are prayers that are in keeping with the character and the mission of Jesus. Whatever, that word whatever, is limited to whatsoever things are really for God's glory, the disciples' good, and the interests of Christ's cause in this world. I'm not saying that you can't pray God for a new job or something. But let us keep in mind what Jesus is actually talking about here. Jesus will certainly answer those prayers because... He will, without a doubt, save all of his people, transform them into his own image, and lead them to glory. And Jesus means to give full joy to his people, the joy he himself experienced. 
It's a joy that goes beyond the circumstances and can be because of the hope that is in his death and his resurrection. Sorry, and his resurrection. See, on a side note, it's a good thing to see something come through here. How often and full are the encouragements to pray which Jesus our Lord holds out in the Gospels? When was the last time you truly asked with urgency and pled with God? Or do you just go through life either not praying because you think God won't hear or because you just don't care? That's not what Jesus tells us to do. How can you pray according to the character and the mission of Jesus also if you don't spend time in his word where he shows his character and his mission? Verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name, he says. Up until this time, the disciples hadn't prayed for anything through the name of Jesus and his mediation of that. And I love how this pastor, this old Lutheran guy from the 1600s, he says it this way. The benefit of prayer is so great that it cannot be expressed. I'm not going to lie. This second point for me was very convicting for me this week. Because I wonder, the benefit of prayer is so great that it cannot be expressed, if that's a thought that I would say. Prayer is the dove which, when sent out, returns again. Praying with it the olive leaf, namely peace of heart. Prayer is the golden chain which God holds fast and lets not go until he pleases. Prayer is Moses' rod which brings forth the water of consolation out of the rock of salvation. Prayer is Samson's jawbone which smites down our enemies. Prayer is David's heart before which the evil spirits flees. Prayer is the key to heaven's treasures. As Jesus says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. In other words, start the practice of asking everything in Jesus' name through my mediation, he says. Ask fully and confidently, and you will receive fully and abundantly. It's when you ask that you will find the joy and comfort of your soul that will fill you up. Because there is coming a time when Jesus won't speak in figures of speech anymore, but will tell them openly about the Father when Jesus leaves, it will benefit his disciples because it will enable him to send the Spirit and grant them new access to the Father through prayer in the name of Jesus and bring about a time when Jesus will speak openly with them about the Father and there will also be a deepening, deepened intimacy with the Father because the Father, as he says, loves them. See, the Father's love, though, that is being talked here for the disciples and favorable disposition towards him is based on the fact that they have loved Jesus and believed that he came from God. But remember, John, the Gospel of John is very clear on this, that the Father is the one who initiated the love. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. 
and that we love because he first loved us, as 1 John 4, 19 says. So John is not saying that people earn the Father's love, but is describing the grace in which believers, those who are in Christ, stand because they love Jesus and believe his claims. It is, after all, because Jesus goes away to the Father that the day will come when the Father himself will hear prayers made in the name of Jesus. So through Jesus, we have a new access to the Father. Jesus is our mediator. We can boldly approach the throne of grace. We need to see how prayer is our duty as believers. And I've been really convicted of this, in my, even in my own personal lack of purposefulness and deliberate time of prayer. Like, I mean sitting down and being purposeful. I know I'm not the only one. So don't you all look at me judging me. I was talking with a friend of mine this past, this past week. Uh, he's an elder of another church. We have a close friendship. And we used to talk about this aspect of prayerless life all the time. And I was, as I was studying this, I was reminded of those conversations, so I had to call him, and I was like, because I couldn't remember all that we said. Because, you know, we solve the world's problems in those issues. Because <laughs> it's true. <laughs> And this is what we talked about on the phone. A prayerless life is essentially a functional agnostic. You ever think about that? And this is why. And this is why. No difference. Because a prayerless life shows no difference in the world around us. When we aren't praying, especially when it's not lined up with the character and the mission of Jesus, we are thinking one of two things. We can handle it on our own. Or, prayer is ineffective. And when you put it that way, pastor, I hope you're convicted just like I was. You know what hardships in the Christian life show us? We can't do it on our own. Prayer is a thermometer of our spiritual life. So this passage really convicted my heart, so I want to be clear on this. Let us no would be a people of prayer because we can't do it on our own and prayer is effective we will be doing that together even t this afternoon after the worship service in our members meeting and i encourage you if you're in the process of becoming a member here or if you already are to come and to join us in prayer as we pour out our heart for this church for each other and this city and I encourage you to do that as we pray together as a church. The joy and happiness that we have comes in degrees and may be fuller at one time than at another. And when we hear what Jesus is saying, we begin to see that the joy of a believer depends a lot on our fervency and earnestness in prayer. J.C. Ryle put it this way, the person that prays little and coldly must not expect to know much of joy and peace in believing. We can't fail to see that it is the duty of a disciple of Jesus to pray. We have a new access with the Father. That should bring us to our knees. God, I don't feel really joyful right now. I just lost my job. Or my kids slammed the door in my face. 
They said that they hate me, or my kids didn't come home last night, or go through the lists. Let us be a people of prayer. Let us pray for one another because it is effective and I can't do it on my own. A Christianity that makes people melancholy and miserable and wretched looking is a low type of Christianity. And far below that standard that Jesus wished that his people would be joy, that joy may be full in them. So let us enjoy the new access of the Father we have because of Jesus. Let us be a people of prayer. We can also be joyful because Jesus also has overcome the world, as we see in verses 29 to 33. And Jesus begins to give some clarity in verse 28 that prompts the disciples' response in verse 29. The disciples go, they even take it a little bit step further in verse 30. Jesus said where he is from in verse 28, and that concludes for them that Jesus knows all things. And when they add that, sorry, and when they add that, he needs no one to question him, as they say. They seem to be responding to the way that, that Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him apart from their actual stating it in verse 19. But Jesus knew not because he was an observant man, but because he his, he possessed a supernatural knowledge as the one who came from God. Another great passage talking about the deity of who he is. And, and in verse 32, we see, we, we could go all the way back to John 13, verse 38, where Jesus says, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So Jesus comes and he asks Peter a question. And then at that moment, he, he predicts that Peter is going to deny him. But now, in, in 16, 31 to 32, Jesus asks the disciples a question before predicting that they will abandon him. Their belief that he came from God that we just saw will not keep them from scattering from him to save their own skin. And here's something cool. Jesus knows that even if all humans desert him, he is not alone. So he says to them in verse 33, Take heart, I have overcome the world. And these are the last words that Jesus says in this discourse to his disciples. They are a summary of what Jesus has said from, verse, from chapters 13 all the way to 16. Jesus will next talk to his father, praying for his people in that next chapter, in chapter 17. But Jesus spoke in chapters 13 to 16 in order for his followers, for his disciples, for those who are in Christ to have peace in him. And Jesus is leaving, but if they believe what he has said in, in chapters 13 to 16, they will have peace. In the world, as he has warned them, they will have tribulation. If there's a Christianity that you believe that you don't think you get to suffer, it's not what Jesus is talking about. And I'm not saying suffering because you keep being a jerk. I'm talking about just suffering to preach in the gospel. We have this tension in this world. I have this ongoing conversation with someone about how... Uh, 
as churches, we need to emphasize that we are created in the image of God, and that is so true. We should do that all the time. But there's only one question that I need to be asked, point blank, that this world hates. So what do you think about marriage? What do you think about gender? What does the Bible say? This world, there has to be an understanding that we will have tribulation, that we will face some woes, the same ones that Jesus faced himself, and they will, be, they will fulfill the appointed sufferings, completing the messianic woes, and they are to take heart, the disciples are to take heart, not because Jesus promises that they will have a hassle-free lives with no suffering, but because he has declared that he has overcome the world. So what does this mean, that Jesus has overcome the world? It means that he, he was tempted in every way, just like you and I, yet remain sinless, as Hebrews 4.15 says. It means that he loved not his life even unto death. It means that he fought the good fight and finished the race and kept the faith that we were called to do and fulfilled his ministry that we are called to do, and he did it perfectly. So what do we do with that? Why in the world do Christians often wander? Why in the world do Christians often wander this world looking like they have been overcome rather than that they have a savior who has overcome? Our God has overcome. Death couldn't hold him. As Acts 2:24 says, "Yes, this life on this side of the grave has its hardships. Maybe we feel like it's just constant." But if you're in Christ, we have a victorious captain. So let's act like it. Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he will leave because of his death, but also because he will be resurrected and will ascend to his Father. This is something that, a, that as disciples of Jesus, we need to come to grips with. Followers of Jesus should anticipate a tribu- tribulation in this world. I'm not saying it's going to happen but we should anticipate it. But there's a promise of, over, of, of overcoming that stands. Jesus is the overcomer par excellence. If you want to live as an overcomer, you must be anchored to, in the gospel of grace. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. In John, in 1 John 5, Verses 4 to 5, it says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? By placing our faith in the finished work of Christ and our union with Him, that is how we overcome. It's not about pulling up your bootstraps. Overcoming is not something we do for Jesus. It's something we do by Jesus. So what do we do with this? Jesus has given us all we need 
to weather the storm and to succeed in his kingdom mission as we wait for his return. In this passage, Jesus tells his disciples that, what, that when they see him raised from the dead, they will experience a joy that no one could take from them. And I'm not going to lighten a load that Jesus doesn't, so you need to remember the enemies of Jesus, they can take our possessions. They can take our loved ones. They can even take our freedoms that we hold so dear. They can take our rights. They can take our jobs. But what can't they take from those who are in Christ? They can't take our joy. Why not? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that means he's conquered. That means he has overcome. That Jesus has overcome the world means that those who trust in him and remain faithful to him can do likewise. So have you trusted in Jesus? Do you believe that he has said about who he is? Do you believe, are you resting in what he has done for you, that he died for your sins, that he rose again? So let me ask you again, what does it mean that Jesus has overcome the world? It means that even if they put believers out of the synagogues, as Jesus warned his disciples, even if they kill the disciples, which they will do and try, even if they take away our tax status as a church for preaching the full gospel, even if they charge us criminally for holding to what the God standard is for marriage and sexuality, even if you lose your jobs because you have stood for what God stands for, believers can overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, not loving their lives even unto death, as Revelation 12 says. That Jesus has overcome the world means sin has no claim. Death has no victory, and Satan has no chance of success. What else do we get from this passage? Jesus promised his disciples that the Father himself loved them and would hear their prayers. So the natural question that for me comes up from this, are we making use of this access to the Father that prayer in the name of Jesus makes possible because of his death and his resurrection? Are you blown away by the intimacy that is possible for us? We can boldly approach the throne of grace because of what Christ has done for us. The Father himself will hear and answer the prayers we offer in accordance with the character and the mission of Jesus. Are we living for what Jesus gave his life to accomplish? Are we relishing all that the full measure of Christ's devotion made possible for us? For those who are in Christ, your joy isn't based on circumstances. It's based on the death and the resurrection of Christ who died for our sins and rose again who ascended to the right hand of God and will one day return when our hope will finally be realized. In light of this, how can we react to this momentary suffering? <laughs> the inconvenience of wearing a mask. What is our reaction when things seem to be spinning out of control? I'll be, like, this week has been a mess. I, I stopped reading the news because I was just getting discouraged all the time. 
I was like, I'm done. If I need to know about it, I'll find out. Because it feels like things are spinning down into the toilet drain. So what do we do? Do I lament and complain about it all day long? And may become a nasty person on social media? Oh, by the way, Christians, you need to be checking your social media stuff. I see it. Please, for the love that you claim to have of God, change your attitude. John says that Jesus' followers will find peace in a world that hates them by reminding them that Jesus has conquered the world. So what brings you joy? What brings you happiness? For the Christian, we have a Savior who has conquered the grave. We have a victorious captain. We, we have a joy. Do you have a joy like this? This is, something that, that, this is something that you can't keep to yourself either. It, it, it would overflow in our lives, wouldn't it? If I understand what Jesus has done for me, that he rose from the dead, that he, that he, he made it possible for me to have a relationship with God, would that not overflow in my life as I go and talk to Bob down the street? Would it not come out in my life and how I act? Would it not want me to push out and to proclaim the gospel to a broken world? See, Jesus has given us all we need to weather the storm and to succeed in his kingdom mission as we wait for his return. So let us sing together. Did you catch that first song that we sung this morning? It's a new one. The first verse says, let the glory of the Lord forever be our joy. May redemption be the theme of our song. For by grace we have been saved, and by grace we shall proclaim to the corners of the earth that Christ has come. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you that in your redemptive work we have a joy that goes beyond our circumstances. We have a new access to the Father by the finished work of Jesus on the cross and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We have a Savior who has overcome, and we can overcome because we have overcome, because you have overcome the world. So let us worship you and praise you in light of what you have said in your word. If you're looking for more information on prayer, there's a great little book right here that we have in our library called Prayer. How Praying Together Shapes the Church. If you want a great critique of it, you can talk to Pastor Matt.